What is the measure of a man? What does it mean to lead a life well lived? I often thought about those questions, and with the help of John Assetti, I had the opportunity to explore them through John's amazing life. John is spry and vibrant at the age of 93, and I met him after he had published his seventh book at age 92. As I got to know John and his life story, I wanted to share this amazing and inspiring journey, which began in Niagara Falls in the 1930s, to his current life in the hill country of Texas. Overcoming an humiliating childhood incident at age eight, John was the first in his family to go to college, served in the Air Force, became a teacher, a principal, and retired from his first career. In his second career, He and his wife traveled internationally and ended up in Kerrville, Texas, where John began yet another career as an author. Join me on this most fascinating journey from last to first with John Assetti. In this episode, John joins the Air Force, returns to the U.S., and completes his college degree in education. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and John Assetti back for another episode. John, first of all, welcome back. Thank you. So, John, you have now graduated from Niagara Falls High. We're going to get to your college experience, but before we get to that, I want to take that time period between your high school graduation and starting college. Did you work that summer, and what was that work experience like for a 17 or 18-year-old? But it was the international paper company where I worked, which was not too far from where I lived. And my job was to serve as an assistant lab person to do experiments with the paper they were producing. And I enjoyed that because it kept my mind busy and active, and I had to recall the systems that I had to work with at that point. I think I must have worked maybe like a month and a half. (coughs) And uh, but I met some nice people who worked there. Most of them were just high school, were high school graduates. They were interested in college. They just had wanted to get a job and make money and live. But uh, I remember thinking to myself, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? Is just testing paper? And I said, no, I don't think so. I've got to I've got to pull my act together so when I get to college, I really have to study. And that was my work experience. So when I went to college, the first year was pretty tough for me. I lived with a group of guys. It's called the House of Lawson. And I think there were either 10 or 12 of us from different parts of the country that came to school there. And we used to have to cook our own meals and clean up after that. And we was pretty well organized. And we had a person who was in charge and so on. But a lot of the guys that were in that house, they were extremely smart. Man, I considered myself a dummy at that point. I didn't feel adequate at all, I, <clears throat> except for my roommate. He was very friendly and asked me a lot of questions and discussed a lot of different things on an adult level. But some of the others, they were, they were like bullies. And you find them all over the place, and I know that. But I I didn't do as well as I wanted to do. But what was hanging over me was the military. My number was coming up fast. 
we're going to get to that in okay. a minute. But where did you start college, and what was your okay. degree? Okay. I went to the State University of New York at Fredonia. And my goal at that time was to study music because it's a music school. Plus, it's an academic area that's been recognized a great deal over the years. <clears throat> and I wanted to specialize in percussion. And then I wanted to head out to California because I had two close friends of mine who were neighbors of mine who were studio musicians out in California. And I figured, hey, go there, make some money, be a big star. Big dream. Then when I started talking to the music professors, when they asked me, what would you like to do for your career? And when they heard what I wanted to do, they said, John, they chuckled a little bit. You gotta really be realistic. And there are a dime a dozen today. You have to be, you have to be especially excellent in what you do, or more. Because if you go to California, there are a lot of musicians there competing for jobs. And you've got to be good, very good. And I said to myself, hmm, that was a barrier that was set up for me. And I said, is that really what I want to do? Is that really what I want to do is to play music all my life? And what if I don't make it? Halfway through my first year of college, I decided, yeah, that's not for me. I know I, I know I don't want it. Not that I can't do it. I don't want to do it. So I changed over to education. I just switched. Academic. Why education? Why education? I became very conscientious about how kids learn through my personal experiences. And I realized that to be a good teacher, you have to have empathy for your students. It's so important. And that, that really concerned me. I think I can become a good teacher. I think I have the value system that I need. I think I have the desire to be a good teacher. I'm willing to study to be a good teacher. I love teaching. I used to have some drum students I was teaching in, in, in high school. So I think I said, I think that's the field that would that I can succeed in. And I did. Let's go back to something you said earlier because people listening to this podcast may not understand it. And you said there was a number and that was forefront of your mind. And it was your draft number. Can you explain to those listeners who may not understand what a draft number was? Sure. What was a draft number? And more importantly, what was the significance of having a lower draft number back then? That's a good question. Uh, when during my first year of college, the Korean War <coughs> excuse me, was on, and they were drafting men, young men, into the service, military. And... I guess they had so many people they had to get in to the military and the Army. You drafted them in the Army. Now, you could join the Navy or the Air Force or the Coast Guard, but they would draft you into the Army. And I kept thinking about it myself, and I'm saying, I have bad eyes. Draft me in the Army, send me to Korea? Hell, if I lose my glasses, man, I'd probably shoot my own men. 
doing that. That, that that's not good. So anyway, I I decided that maybe what I better do because if I'm going to be drafted, maybe I should take on the responsibility of making my own choice. What was your draft number? Do you remember? Oh, it was low. It was low, and and I knew it was low because I used to have I used to get letters periodically. After 80 years, I can't remember what number it was. They they were saying, here are the numbers that we're working towards. It wasn't very far off that I was going to be drafted. So I talked to a good friend of mine, one of my real good buddies. And he was a couple years younger than I was. And his name was Joe. I said, Joe, I said, I'm thinking about joining the Air Force for four years as opposed to the Army for two years because if, if I go to the Army... I know they're going to send me to Korea. That's where they need the guys. And, man, they're dying like crazy over there, young guys. But I have four years. So maybe while I'm in the military, I can do maybe take some classes, get started in my career, which is what I did. And uh, now we got, I got through my first year, and the summertime is when I also worked again. <coughs> and then I decided that in September— Time for me to, time for me to go. I talked with about with my parents. I explained to them why I'm doing this and where I'll be going. I didn't know I was going to Germany, but he said, "John, I'll join with you." This is a buddy of mine, Joe. I said, "That's great. We can both go together." And so we did our basic training in in New York State for I think it was eight weeks. Then we went to technical school in Missouri for another. Hey, three or four months. And then they were ready to ship us out. Now, we had a choice, either England or Germany. Now, when we got, we were in line waiting. My buddy was way ahead of me, so we didn't have a chance to talk to him. <clears throat> so he selected England. And I said, no, I'm not going to England. I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I'm going to Germany. We didn't talk to each other until after. So he got his, and I got mine. And now we have 30 days a year leave. <laughs> he would always go home for 30 days. I had 30 days too, but I never went home. I traveled all over Europe. So you were a private? Oh, no. The beginning, yeah. The private first class. <clears throat> Army first class, and then I moved up to Airman first class. John, what was your technical specialty in the Air Force? I was a, a clerk. Typist, office work, and uh, but I did more than just office work. I was when they sent us to Germany, I they had placed me with a fighter bomber squadron, and there were three uh, three squadrons within the group. Mine was the fifty third fighter bomber squadron, and uh, we not only <coughs> served as clerk typists, but we worked with the pilots. We had quite a few pilots in our squadron. And our, my, my responsibility was to keep track of their flying time and also any information that pertained to them for their records. And I think probably one of the, when we were in Germany, we used to go down to North Africa once a year for 10 days of air-to-air gunnery for the pilots. And what they would do, they would fly over the Mediterranean. One plane, one pilot would fly his plane with a target behind him. <clears throat> the other pilots would fly around him and 
shoot into the target. <clears throat> and then they would drop the target off where we were stationed. And if you want to see adult, mature men, pilots, excited as little primary kids, looking at these holes, find out where, how many they shot and where they shot, that's what you saw. And it was just great to, to stand back and watch. Like, they were all little kids. <laughs> but uh, they were very friendly, and they were very nice. <clears throat> In fact, I even asked one major once, I said, sir, how do you get up, how do you have a chance to get up to fly with one of the pilots, one of the T-33s, there's a guy in the back, guy in the front. He said, you want to fly? I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. He said, no problem, we'll get a hold of you. It wasn't two days later, he had come back to get me, as John is sitting here, and they looked for me, and said, yeah, there's John. John, you ready to fly? Let's go. I'm ready. And I'm a test pilot, too, so you're going to fly with me. Holy man. I said, are you serious? You, I'm going to be allowed to come? He said, yeah. Man, was I excited. So the crew chief put me in the back seat, strapped me up, gave me the instructions of what to do in case I had to bail out. Hell, I didn't remember anything. <laughs> I would have died on his back because <laughs> I, I was so excited. So we flew over the Zugpitz. You know where that is in Germany? No. The mountain scene. Oh, the Alps. Oh, man, it was gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Looking over, looking down. He was doing all kinds of movements. I didn't get sick, fortunately. I was surprised. Although there was a bag there. We were up for about a half hour. And it was probably the most challenging and exciting thing I ever did in my life. I still have fond memories of it. When I came down, some of the fellows asked, how was it? I said, oh. But they were so afraid to do that. I'm not afraid. Hey, you'll never get this kind of chance again. So that's what was a great experience in the military. What was Germany like in 1952, 1953? Followed the people, friendly, but somewhat standoffish. They didn't know whether to trust me or not, from what I surmised. <clears throat> I got to know quite a few of them. In fact, I took a couple of courses in German. <clears throat> Just to, if I had to go to a restaurant or ask for directions, at least I could do that, which I did. And I enjoyed the courses that I had, and the people were nice. And I would go in town and practice my language. I'd go and I would go to a restaurant. Ein bitte, ein Steak. <clears throat> and they would look at me as if, wow, you from Germany? <laughs> We'd laugh. But anyway, I was able to ask directions of how to get places and how to order. And that, that's all I wanted to do. And that's all they wanted to hear. Because they didn't want to talk politics, and I didn't either. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> but uh, I did a lot of traveling, either by myself or with other guys. We'd go to Sweden. We'd go to Amsterdam. Sometimes a flight would be going up, like a C-47 flight. They were taking stuff up to another air base, and we'd fly up with them. They'd be there for a couple of days. We'd fly back. Spain, Rome, Italy. We went all over the place, by the way. I was really very confident at that point, able to travel on my own in a foreign country, man. I really gained a lot of respect for myself and a lot of confidence, and that's what got me through.
In addition to the learning to respect yourself and gaining confidence, you think there were any lessons you learned in your Air Force life or military life that you were able to bring forward into your professional career or even think about today? Yes, absolutely. One incident that taught me that human beings can be wonderful and they can be cruel. I remember a bunch of us were slept in a tent, probably about, I think it was about 15 of us slept in a tent in Germany. And this was up in, we were, we, they moved, after six months in Munich, <coughs> or near Munich, they moved us up to Bitburg, which is a little city just the east of Bitburg. And every night, every night there was one guy who had one more stripe than I had would come back into the tent drunk every night. He'd be shouting, singing, and wake everybody up. So we'd been asleep probably an hour. And I said, can you keep it quiet, please? He came over to me. And man, was he mad. He said, don't you dare tell me what to do. I have another stripe. I can tell you what to do. And I'm saying, my God, this is a human being? Can't you see this? So I learned the lesson that sometimes you have to cope with a situation because there's nothing else you can do about it. I couldn't go and hold my mother's hand or my father's hand. I was on my own. So I had to handle it. Real drunkard. And that, that is a very memorable experience I had. Another experience I had is that one of the other clerks was responsible for taking care of some information on paper, and he wasn't very sharp, by the way, and I know that. So one day I offered to help him. Let me look it over and see if I can find any any errors. He said, okay, thank you. So I got the paper, and I sat at his desk. Man, it wasn't two minutes later. Who comes rushing in is the commander of our squadron, colonel. He's looking directly at me. I'm sitting at his desk. Can't you guys do anything right, damn it? This report is supposed to be done on time. You're supposed to have an accurate. What's wrong with all you people here anyway? And I turned around and I saw that my, the guy I was trying to help, and he put his head down. He didn't say anything. <clears throat> so I took it all. So I'm saying to myself, what's wrong with people, Kent? Here the guy is a colonel. You have to come out and shout, and maybe you have the wrong person. Why not ask, who made out this report? Then we can say, the guy can admit, I made out the report, not me. I'm helping him. So I got scolded for a guy who was incompetent and couldn't do his work. <clears throat> and that, that, that floored me about the military. In fact, that pretty well sold me, don't stay in the military, John. Do your four years and get out. So you got out, you got honorably discharged. Did you go back to college? And can you tell us about the rest of your college career? Oh, sure. I came back after four years in October and worked for another company as a clerk answering the phone. It was an oil company. I don't remember the name of it. An oil company answering the phone and doing chores around the office there. And then while I'm working, I'm deciding, okay, John, <clears throat> I can wait till September to go back to school or I can go in January, mid-year. 
I decided that, hey, I'm not going to work here. This is, this is not for me. So I contacted the college, and they accepted me back in college in January. At State University of New York? That's right, Fredonia. And got permission to go, and that's what I did. Then I stayed in a, in a home where I had a room, a boarding room, for myself. And that was great. I didn't have 12 guys to worry about, to cook and so on. I'd go out to eat. And then I'd study all the time. But I would go home on weekends. I would go home on weekends. I would leave on, say, Saturday morning. I had a car at that point. And I'd come back from the military. And I, used, I saved a lot of money in the military. And I bought a car. It was too hard to drive. I'd drive every weekend. And then Saturday night, I'd be out playing making some money. And then I'd stay home on a Sunday, and then I would have lunch with my parents, and then I would drive back. And I would once I got back, I would hit the sack for about maybe three or four hours, and I'd wake up maybe 12, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'd go right back to the books. I had no problem. I was wide awake. Everything worked out fine. So did you graduate? Oh, sure. And what was your final degree in? I got a bachelor's in education. Well, John, that's a great point for us to end this episode yeah. because we're... And then I went out for my master's also after. So you went directly from a bachelor degree to getting your master's? Yes, correct. At the State University of New no, York? No, at the University of Buffalo. At the University of Buffalo. Tell us what was your experience like at the University of Buffalo? How was it different than State University of New York? And what do you think getting a master's really gave you at that point in your life? The University of Buffalo is quite a big school. A lot of students, and I used to, I was a commuter, and uh, I enjoyed it at that point. I was doing what I wanted to do, and I felt, I made me feel comfortable. And I had to, <clears throat> I had to develop a thesis, and the thesis was to the transition of uh, students from elementary school to junior high, and what are the problems they have and how they cope with that. And, uh, and I got my master's degree in counseling, guidance and counseling. And that was the best thing I could have ever done. And I'd like to explain why. Time? You bet. I got in counseling because I felt that, and I was, I, I've been teaching, and I was planning to continue to teach. I thought that kids need a lot of counseling at all levels. And I felt that the green counseling would help me a great deal rather than specialize in something else. And I noticed that when I went back to school as a teacher and as a counselor, I remember many meetings I went to, either parents or administrators. And I remember one time, especially with parents, <coughs> they would ask, there were five five of us elementary principals in this one school. Have you used a paddle on a child? Four of them said yes. One said no. It was me. And they asked me, why? I said, I don't see any need for the paddle. Now, parents are wondering, what's wrong with this guy? The other guy's used a paddle, you don't. <clears throat> I have a master's degree in counseling, and I figure to be able to counsel a child is more important than paddling a child. I think that's unfair. Now, the other, my, my buddies, principals, they hated me for that. <clears throat> oh, man, they just rattled me, but I, was, I had a lot of confidence. 
didn't bother me at all. I knew I was right. I knew I was right. And uh, I said, I counsel kids. And uh, I respect kids. And they respect me. But I've seen people, I've seen principal paddle kids. And that's not a nice thing to see. We're going to save some of those stories for our next episode, John. Look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode one of From Last to First, the John Assetti story. It's been my privilege to work with John on this project. He has used it to jumpstart his autobiography, which will be coming out in the next month or two, and I will certainly let you know when that happens. We've linked to John's author page on Amazon.com in the show notes, so check out some of the great books by John Assetti. From last to first, the John Assetti story is a special production of the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network.